This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Jeremy Rose. Later in the programme, we'll hear from New Zealand Herald journalist Keith Ng, who's recently back from reporting the protests in Hong Kong. But first, the climate protests led by children that prompted some childish responses from adults. Any on an issue. There we go. You were meant to do climate change. I believe that you were part of a group that's apparently quite worried about climate change as journalists. Yes. Okay, then. <laughs> um, I think we've run out of time. It's been 20 years. But you can there's hang always time for cl- There's like. always time for climate change. Oh, it's happening in front of us, isn't it? Hear that sound. Listen to it. Actually, that's quite ironic. We've run out of time because that's what we could say when it comes to climate change. That is well. absolutely right. Yeah. That was Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern back on the 17th of September, appearing on Three's The AM Show. The group she was referring to there was Covering Climate Now, a collection of more than 300 media organisations from around the world, reaching an audience of over a billion, who committed themselves to increasing their climate change coverage in the weeks leading up to the UN Climate Action Summit on the 23rd of September. And NewsHub was among the New Zealand media organisations that signed up, along with TVNZ, RNZ, the New Zealand Herald, Stuff, the Otago Daily Times, Newsroom and the spin-off. The result was almost certainly the most intensive period of climate change coverage in New Zealand's history, culminating in last week's climate strike. Kia ora, good evening. It's one of the biggest nationwide protests in New Zealand history. An estimated 150,000 people today adding their voices to the campaign against climate change more than double the turnout of the first strike. The streets from Northland to Invercargill were awash with demonstrators of all ages, joining together to demand change. And as that one news report made clear, it was young people leading the charge. New Zealand's third nationwide strike, part of a global movement including more than 165 countries across seven continents, all organised by young people, inspired by one of their own, unafraid to take on their leaders. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? If there was one person who dominated coverage both here and internationally, it was Greta Thunberg, who we just heard there addressing the United Nations Climate Action Summit. But not everyone in the media was enamoured by the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist. And Greta Thunberg, I'm sorry, but a hero for, for young people. She totally overplayed her hand at the UN. Too dramatic, and this just, just turns people off. For world's most annoying kid lecturing adults with a startling amount of hot air and hyperbole. Yeah, Greta. I'm not affronted by her because I'm old and grumpy and white and I'm, I'm threatened by a teenager. I find that argument sort of pathetic. I think we have every right to, as adults who've lived a life full of experience, to look at a kid who probably should be in school instead of sailing around the place shouting at the UN and go, yeah... Yeah, what do you say to the likes of Duncan Garner, Mike Hosking and Kate Hawksby when they attack the 16-year-old messenger while ignoring the message? Well, as it happens, Greta Thunberg herself was asked about that in an interview with Canadian author Naomi Klein, which kicked off online magazine The Intercepts covering Climate Now coverage. They cannot argue against, because I'm only saying what the science is saying, and you can't argue against... Physics, if there's a fire there and I, and I say it's a fire there, we need to, to, to put, it put it out. Yes, <laughs> we need to put that fire out. It's like the most reasonable reaction would be that you look at the fire and say like, oh, 
we need to put it out. Yeah. But now they, they seem to be like, they look at the fire and they look at me like, what are you wearing? We could fill a programme with the local and international commentators who wanted to talk about Greta Thunberg rather than the fire. Suffice to say, there was a lot of childishness, almost all of it coming from those north of 40, in opinion pieces purposely designed to cause outrage and generate clicks. It's the business model. And we could fill another programme with the avalanche of opinion pieces defending Greta Thunberg published by the New Zealand Herald, Stuff, The Spin-Off and RNZ in response to Duncan Garner and Mike Hosking's musings. To extend Greta Thunberg's metaphor, it's as if the nation's columnists and opinion shapers turned their backs on the fire to defend the climate activists' dress sense. The New Zealand Herald alone ran columns by Paul Little, Liam Dan, Jamie Morton, Eleanor Barker and satirist Steve Braunius criticising Hosking and Garner. And in an interview, climate scientist James Renwick declared himself a Greta fanboy. Two days after Greta Thunberg addressed the UN, the International Panel on Climate Change released a report on sea level rise. A new United Nations climate report is warning that the lives of hundreds of millions of people are under threat from rising sea levels. It says sea levels are rising faster than previously predicted and ice is melting at an unprecedented rate. And one of the report's co-authors, Massey University professor Bruce Glavovich, left RNZ's morning report listeners in no doubt as to the seriousness of the report's findings. Well, to start with, it shines a spotlight brightly on the fundamental importance of the oceans and frozen parts of the planet for life on Earth. And the fact of the matter is that changes that have been underway in these systems imperil the health and well-being of humanity and life on Earth. But as far as we're aware here at Media Watch, the IPCC report failed to inspire a single column in New Zealand. NewsHub's 6pm bulletin placed it sixth on its running order after stories on the death of a student at a hall of residence, a child being swept out to sea, Fonterra cutting 63 jobs at a cheese factory, the National Party being upset it can't use parliamentary TV in attack ads, Jacinda Ardern's appearance on The Late Show, President Trump's latest impeachment woes, and Boris Johnson facing heat in Parliament. Then, 24 minutes or so into the bulletin, they got to this. A new United Nations report is warning that climate change appears to be accelerating and the polar ice melt is having a devastating impact on the world's oceans. And the report hammered home the point that climate change is happening now and in our region. Scientists studying the impact of the ice melt on the Solomon Islands have found the alarming proof of the catastrophic effect that global warming is having. Of 33 islands in the Solomon's chain, five have disappeared beneath the rising waves altogether. The package by ITV's Rachel Junger was as gripping as it was tragic. Gladys, who grew up here, has watched entire islands disappear. She takes us to Carley, where her grandparents had a home, but there's no trace of it, and her face says it all. This is my first time back in five years, and yeah, there's literally nothing left. I never thought it would disappear in such a short period of time. Across On One News, the IPCC report was 13th in the running order, with all the same stories as News Hub, plus one on a sex attacker being arrested, an earthquake in Pakistan, the possibility of the price of strawberries going up, and African swine flu. Its story on the report began like this. 
the latest warning from a United Nations climate panel could spell trouble for our winter tourism. For the first time, the UN has done a comprehensive audit of our oceans and sub-zero climates, revealing more major concerns for our planet. RNZ's Drive Time Checkpoint program didn't feature the report at all, but it was reported by RNZ's First Up Morning Report and Dateline Pacific. It took 150,000 New Zealanders taking to the streets to convince the 6pm news bulletins that climate change should lead the news. Parliament's lawn was full and still they kept coming. Tens of thousands of people too marching up Auckland's Queen Street, Cathedral Square and Christchurch, Kaitaia, Napier and Dunedin. All asking the same question. Why are you still letting climate change continue? Do you even know what the consequences will be? But quite possibly the biggest protest in New Zealand's history failed to rate a mention in the country's only national newspaper, the Sunday Star Times, two days later. The paper did find space for a column by David Aranovich on Greta Thunberg. That night, TVNZ's Sunday programme had the inspired idea of putting some of New Zealand's climate strike organisers in a room with some of the country's biggest polluters. So who's the biggest problem? Globally, I'd say the fossil fuel industry. Uh, BP, ExxonMobil and Z Energy turned us down. More locally in New Zealand, if you look at our emissions, 49% of them come from agriculture. And Luke Weijon, who you just heard there, and fellow climate strike organisers Lucy Gray, Gemma York and Sophie Hanford got to question representatives from Fonterra and Air New Zealand. There is a promising feed that, that the cows can eat that reduces how much methane's made in their body. Do we have time to wait for that technology when we actually do know exactly what we need to do? It would have been good to hear more of that grilling, which was tightly edited to fit the Sunday format. But regardless, it was refreshing to see the young not only setting the news agenda, but getting to ask the questions. So, with climate change now, the UN summit and last week's climate strike behind us, how did media rise to the challenge of covering what some are calling the biggest story of our age? New Zealand Politics Daily, a digest of the day's most significant stories, included 129 climate change stories during the week of covering climate change now. During that same week, Media Watch took a look at the top four stories on the main New Zealand websites once a day. The results clearly showed that the media was willing to give blanket daily coverage to a topic it knows very well at least half the population has very little interest in, a topic some sceptics claim is utterly unimportant, but that didn't stop them committing huge resources to covering every conceivable angle of the Rugby World Cup. The Covering Climate Now reporting was also impressive, but not on anywhere near the same scale. The New Zealand Herald, for example, featured climate articles among its top four stories four times, compared to 14 stories on sport or entertainment. RNZ had six sports or entertainment stories and three climate ones, and stuff which led the pack when it came to climate stories, with eight, had 12 sports or entertainment stories. There was no shortage of excellent backgrounders and innovative approaches to covering climate. The New Zealand Herald launched a podcast. Stuff ran a series of cartoons by Sharon Murdoch. One News ran 10 Covering Climate Now reports. And Newsroom pulled out all the stops with climate coverage dominating much of its coverage that week. 
but it still lacked the urgency of something like the Rugby World Cup. A recent RNZ Morning Report Christchurch mayoral debate ended like this. I've got the rap and I really wanted to get to climate change, but we'll have to save that for another day. So I, I do want a quick comment from all three of you on what can you offer people in terms of how you will prepare Christchurch for uh, the impacts of climate change. I'll start with you, John Minto. The three candidates were left with less than a minute each to outline their position on climate change during the 23-minute debate. And as we heard earlier, the Prime Minister had to remind one of News Hub's most prominent broadcasters that his organisation had signed up to a week of climate change coverage. So were those the exceptions or an indication of the media's priorities and how should journalists report on climate change in the future? Earlier this week, I put those questions to Adelia Hallett, the editor of Carbon News, New Zealand's only specialist climate change publication. But first, I asked the former Media Watch reporter how reporting had changed since she filed her first climate change story for a daily newspaper in the 1980s. Well, not enough, to be honest. I mean, back in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, that's about the time of the Rio summit, we were talking about climate change. It, it was kind of the big thing. I remember looking at a house um, with a real estate agent here in Whangarei, and the, the agent was sort of saying, oh, well, you want to make sure you're, you're well above the sea level rise. So, you know, it was in a public consciousness then. Then again, in the early 2000s to around about 2008, Coverage was picking up a bit then. It was it was a topic, a public topic again. Then then we had the GFC and it, it dived away again. So I I, I guess um, you know it's sort of come in cycles. I'm really hoping that this time it's around to stay. A comment you hear often is that we need to be careful of climate change fatigue. That there's just so much of it. We never hear the same, of course, about rugby or violent crime or I have celebrity fatigue. fatigue. <laughs> But how do you respond to that? And and does the media need to change the way it reports to, to avoid that sense of fatigue and, in fact, sometimes even despair? I think that maybe we need to step away from labelling it. It is just news. It's not climate change news per se. It is just news. And actually, you know, the putting it in one box and saying, now, children, we're going to talk about climate change sort of makes it like a even a hated lesson at school, whereas if you, you thread it through everyday life, you know, kids can learn, say, technology while they're doing other stuff or reading, you know, our, our teachers now teach us maths while we're doing other things that we like. So it is quite possible to do that. And I think what we need to do is stop saying, right, now it's climate change um, being shoved down your throat and just integrate it far more. The spin-off had an interesting example of that, actually, as part of their climate change now coverage, which was that they turned their food page into a plant-based recipes only. But, of course, it's just for the week. I mean, should we really be having it in every aspect of our reporting? So should all publications be looking at having far more recipes that don't have meat or dairy products? Yes, for lots of reasons, <laughs> including climate change as well as health and, and all sorts of reasons. But I think, you know, it is a good example of of not, of not making climate change something over there. My feeling is that journos have, with, with a few notable exceptions, there are some excellent journalists out there like Rebecca McPhee, Charlie Mitchell, Jamie Morton, um, you know, who have done some ex- excellent stuff on, on climate change. But on the whole, we've kind of, m- most journalists seem to, have a bit of the um, recently reformed smoker <laughs> about them. You know, we sort of discovered it and, and, and we're making a big deal of it. And yet it is a big deal. It's the biggest story any of us will ever cover. But it is, 
it is just part of everything. It is part of politics. It's part of the economy. It's even part of sport, you know, because it's going to be too hot to play cricket. You know, they're even the um, they're, they're looking at whether they need to play cricket in shorts and <laughs> in times to come. So, you know, it, it's part of everything. Last week there was this IPCC report on sea level rise, huge, important report. Came the day after Greta Thunberg's speech. Greta's speech was responded to, as everyone will know, by Mike Hosking, Duncan Garner. And those responses in themselves generated an avalanche of responses saying that is completely unfair, you shouldn't be attacking her, etc. In comparison, the IPCC report didn't receive any op-eds as far as I know. It was reported, but there was no op-eds. Is that a sign of something about the media and our inclination to report individual stories over more complicated issue-type stories? Yes, and it, it doesn't just apply in climate change, of course. It, it, it's been a trend over the last sort of 20 years. And, and also you've got to see it against the background of declining newsroom resources. You know, we don't have a lot of space in newsroom these days for reporters to bury their heads in subjects for and become very knowledgeable about um, what are perceived as, as sort of, well, climate change has been res- perceived in newsrooms as a fringe topic for coverage. So understanding things like the IPCC reports, you do need to have some background. You know, I went, went back to university and studied it to, so that I could at least be more informed when I was interviewing people about it. I personally was quite disturbed about the wall-to-wall Greta coverage, not because I didn't think what she was saying was newsworthy, but because of this tendency we have to just latch on to um, an individual with some, you know, a bit of quirk in the story. And she is a 16-year-old girl. She's done some amazing stuff, but she's a 16-year-old girl. She doesn't have all the solutions. The ones that we really should be pinning over this are the, are the ones who have the power to, to make the changes and the ones who have failed to make the, the changes so far and and you know part of that I think is we in the media ourselves this is not a new problem you know it was the, the first scientific paper on this came out in 1894 or 6 4 I think 1912 the Rodney and Waitemata Times was was reporting on it so you know there we go more than a century in more recent times and so the the scale and immediacy of the problem really became aware to us in the 80s and scientists have repeatedly raised this, and the media has ignored it. You know, I know journalists who have left mainstream newspapers, large newspapers like the Herald, in frustration over a lack of coverage. They have been aware of the problems, they've been trying to get those stories up, and they have just been squashed. We actually need to ask ourselves the question of what culpability do we have in the public and, and political failure to deal with this in a timely manner, and that would have saved us an awful lot of damage and grief. We also tend to individualise the solution. So I, I read a article on the Atomic Bulletin, you know, the Atomic Scientist Bulletin, mm. which was part of covering climate now, and they tackled that issue that's been tackled a lot of just how bad is air travel, and their conclusion was that it's travel itself that is terrible, and particularly travel which is powered by fossil fuels and if you reduce that to an individual it doesn't actually change much possibly we all travel a little bit less but if you look at it as a society and particularly say America it would mean that you would have fast trains powered by renewable energy but we do have this 
inclination, particularly with climate change for some reason, to reduce it to a kind of moral failure of individuals. So are we doing enough? Are we eating meat? Not should the economy move away from meat in general? Should we be coming up with alternatives to, to flying? Do you see that as a problem, that we've, we've atomised the solution? Yes, I do. I mean, it's a very glib thing. You'll see it all over social media, and you get it in person as well. You know, did you come to the protest in a fossil fuel car? Well, yes, I did because there are no buses, and it's you know I live I live ten miles away. <laughs> you know, you, there's a tendency to dismiss the issue because of individuals are unable to do something about it. What we need is is vast systemic change. And I think we've got this real reluctance to have those conversations. I mean, we, we, we haven't really seriously questioned the way we do things since the early 80s with the neoliberal changes that, that swept through under the Longy government. We, we don't really have those kind of big conversations anymore. Is there a different way of doing it? There are some excellent people. Um, there's, a, there's a group called the Wise Response Group, for example, which is, um, Sir Geoffrey Palmer is the patron and um, Emeritus Professor Sir Alan Mark is the, um, the chair. It, it includes some of our, our, our best and brightest thinkers. Now, they have been trying to get um, discussions going on how we do things for sort of, I don't know, seven or eight years. They petition Parliament, they hold meetings, they do all sorts of things. But they struggle to get noticed. You know, these these are people who really do know their stuff and they are asking some of those big questions about about capitalism, about the way in which we structure our society and having those big rethinks. But those are the sort of conversations we don't want to have. And, and the media is not really playing its fourth estate role, which is making sure that those voices who are credible are being heard. If you were appointed the editor of one of our major news organisations next week, what what would you do? How, how would you change the coverage? I would say every journalist and every story they write or prepare um, for broadcast, they had, to, they had to ask that question, and what does climate change mean in this? Actually, it's not just journalists who need to do it, it's every aspect of society, but in the media specifically, that's the big change I would make, that you, you say, how does climate change change this, whether it's how do we cut emissions, is this going to be possible in future, Th- those sorts of questions. I would also talk to the people running the news desk, the ones who actually decide who's the copy tasters and, and, and rank the stories, and say... Look not just at the sensationalist or the the kind of the, the grabbiness of a story, but actually how important is it and how many people does it affect, and you know how how big are the impacts from this? Because in news we're we're, we're sort of stuck in this tyranny of of the urgent over over the important. Something's breaking. Something's happened. And in the scale of things, climate change is not quite as immediate unless you've got a big natural disaster happening. But at the end of the day, it's much more important and much more significant and will affect many, many, many more people. So I think we, I, I would be instructing staff to, to make that call in judging what, what, what we lead newspapers and bulletins with. That was Carbon News Editor and veteran climate change reporter Adelia Hallett. And there's an extended version of that interview included in the web version of this story, which you'll find on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Seventy years after the beginning of communist rule in China, there have been violent clashes between police and protesters in Hong Kong. 
That was how RNZ's morning report introduced an item on the latest round of protests in Hong Kong on Wednesday, and this is how TVNZ began its report that night. Hong Kong on fire. Smoke and tear gas filling the streets. These are just a few of the tens of thousands who turned out in defiance. And one thing they had in common was that both items were compiled from the comfort of a New Zealand newsroom. Media academic and the author of The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World, Melanie Bunce, recently told Media Watch that foreign reporting was one of the casualties of the crisis in the New Zealand media. We're also seeing the neglect of global news. So it's very uncommon to see original uh, news about international issues being made by the New Zealand media because it's just so expensive. New Zealand Herald data journalist Keith Ng was an exception to the rule last month when he filed a series from the front line of the Hong Kong protests. It was unusual for a New Zealand media organisation to have a reporter on the ground and even more unusual to have a foreign correspondent who could speak Cantonese, the language of Hong Kong. He also tweeted some of the protests, including videos of the action. Yellow flag raised in Tong Chong, official warning to disperse. The old folks in dark yellow are wearing Protect the Children vests and are essentially being volunteer human shields between the cops and the protesters. Mall is closing its doors and ushering all the protesters inside. Quite a lot of confusion. Meanwhile, McDonald's is doing a roaring trade. The evacuation order over the PA is not being respected. I've seen David Burton reviews that have gotten more people to leave. Honestly, though, it's air-conditioned in here, so I'm staying here till I get tear-gassed. The situation's gone so static that everyone's attention is, I shit you not, focused on a young man and an old man doing the bottle challenge, the bottle-flipping thing. Police are dispersing. I suppose once the protesters have successfully flipped a bottle onto its end, it's time to call it a day. I caught up with Keith earlier this week and started by asking him, as a Cantonese speaker who knows Hong Kong well, what did he make of the coverage by other Western journalists? I think there was a lot of focus on the novel tactics and the physical things that were going on, so a lot of focus on fires. Fires make great photos, and so every time there was a small fire... All the photographers basically ran there. It gives you kind of a warped perception of what is going on because it makes it seem like the tactical front line was the only front line, that it ignored all the cultural stuff, which is actually the much more important part from my point of view. So for me, this was a very strange experience of going and doing this sort of reporting in a place where I grew up, where I know the language, where I understand culture. And it was the first time that I really felt the emotional resonance of a lot of the small things that were going on. For example, in public transport, and people would break out into singing of this Hong Kong anthem, which was a deeply emotional experience for everyone there. I've always been the one to talk about, oh, but what are the rational goals? What are they trying to achieve? And always think about things in those terms. But this was the first time where I really understood how the emotional elements is really what is driving everything and that why it's really the most important thing to think about beyond what is burning and who is chasing who and, you know, the police protest action. So how unusual were you in being able to speak Cantonese among the foreign reporters? It's quite interesting that, that I guess a lot of the reporters are sort of in a similar position to me, that, that there, were, there were some uh, sort of white Western reporters, but there were also a lot of Chinese Canadians, Chinese Australians who have come back and 
are sort of in a similar position where they they do know the language and they're a little bit alien to it, but are also a little bit familiar with it. Uh, and I think a lot of us have very mixed and very deeply layered reaction to that stuff. So did you see examples of non-Cantonese speakers just getting things badly wrong? Absolutely. The, the biggest one is probably... One of the New York Times columnists who came, and uh, this was this was about a month or two ago, uh, and said that everything in Hong Kong is so normal. Nothing is there. There's no big disruption. There's no graffiti, which was a really big one that everyone latched onto. Uh, and it was like, oh God, look around! Like everything is full of graffiti everywhere. It was just a little bit incomprehensible how you can get something like that wrong. But there are a lot of Western reporters who have arrived and. They actually serve a really important role in that they do sort of have a special status and there's a level of protection that is afforded the protesters when those journalists are there. And when you're there, that wouldn't have the same impact? Um, No, no. Uh, And I think uh, the relationship between local Hong Kong journalists and police is quite interesting because... They really give them a piece of their minds that that, uh, it turns into sort of swearing matches between police and reporters who, I guess after 100 days, everyone gets very angry with each other when the police are sort of calling journalists cockroaches and telling them to, you know, using very colourful language to tell them to go away. Uh, The journalists often push back and are often, I guess, very upset personally as 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 Hong Kongers, to be treated that way by the police. Um, And I think that's a very different dynamic from someone like me who feels definitely like an outsider. I would never think to assert those kinds of rights to to yell back at police. Something I didn't think I'd ever see is Chinese characters expressing curse words from Cantonese in the New Zealand Herald. (laughs) Was that difficult to convince the editors to to run Chinese characters in your story? Uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. Uh, so so it, it doesn't say anything too bad. <laughs> like, honestly, Cantonese people sure know how to swear, so the things that I got into the Herald was very much on the very, very low end of the spectrum. Are there kind of tropes that Western reporters bring to somewhere like Hong Kong, cliches that they just use <laughs> that irritate somebody like yourself? Um, I think... The protesters play into it as well. <laughs> I think in particular something like the the Be Water stuff, the quoting of Bruce Lee and playing up that side of things. I think it's a game that both sides are actively and willingly participating in, so I, I'm not too annoyed with it, but I do find that it doesn't get into the guts of the issue, which is often a lot murkier. So in, in particular with, with the Bruce Lee thing, that it makes you focus on the tactics and the physical going-ons on the streets and ignores the political and the cultural aspects. Britain never established a democracy in Hong Kong during its 99 mm. years of rule, but it did establish a free press. To what extent has that survived? To what extent is the Hong Kong press free? It's interesting because I think everyone, at the surface level, very committed to it. Everyone says they're very committed to it. But over the last couple of months, we've seen it erode quite substantially. So it started off with, I guess, police being very personally aggrieved uh, about the way that they're being covered. And so there would be small things like throwing tear gas directly, uh, tear gas canister directly at journalists, which, by the way, is an incendiary device. So it's actually like quite unsafe to throw it at someone. 
And then there's things like using water cannons, uh, directing them at journalists. And this is not just water that they've actually added irritants, the same kind of irritants, uh, presumably, that you find in tear gas, uh, so that when you get sprayed by the water cannon, it feels like it's not as bad as being pepper sprayed, but it's the same kind of thing. And then most recently, in the last week, an Indonesian journalist got shot by a beanbag uh, in the eye, uh, and that's that's a really... It's a really direct thing because the police had to actually point their guns at a group of journalists and to pull the trigger, which speaks to a direct attack on journalists. And you became quite acquainted with tear gas yourself and how to deal with it. I mean, I imagine that's not something you ever expected to need in your talk, but how do you deal with with tear gas as a reporter? Oh, so conveniently, I ha- I used to be a St. John ambulance volunteer, so that that came in real real handy. And the advice is actually really simple: wash, wash, wash. Uh, just get get the gunk out of your eye. So um, I was carrying around a bottle of saline, uh, and all you have to do is squirt it in your eye and just get out as much as you can. How uncomfortable is it? I would rate it. Four out of five. <laughs> it's not the worst thing I've experienced, but it's not great. You declared in one of your Herald columns that the Hong Kong police are an army of occupation, in effect. Mm. Will taking a stand like that impact on your ability to, say, report from China? Probably. On the other hand, there are hundreds of thousands of us saying the same thing all around the world. So. Um, I feel like I'm pretty small fries uh, to... I don't think I've quite made it to the to the list, to the A-list yet, put it that way. How did the trip come about? It's, it's unusual now for journalists to travel for things other than Rugby World Cups or, mm. or other major events. Was it your initiative? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really pushed for it. It was a thing that I felt very strongly about and really wanted to go... My day job is a data journalist for the Herald, so this really has nothing to do with my day job. But my boss let me go, and um, it it worked out well. And are you wanting to go back? Um, A little bit. I think coming back to this idea of the cultural aspects, that right now we're seeing continuing escalations in the tactical elements of it, but in terms of how society is operating and how people think about themselves and about this movement, there's not much that I can do at the moment. So I guess it's still waiting and seeing what the government will actually do in response to try to solve the political parts of the problem. To what extent are the Hong Kong protesters linking themselves with, say, the Uyghur situation Mm. or Taiwan? They're doing that very strongly, and I think that's something that we need to think about as well, so that we as... New Zealanders in general and New Zealand journalists in particular need to start thinking about what Hong Kong actually means for us. Um, And it's not that New Zealand will be occupied or controlled in the same way. It's about seeing how Chinese influence actually works, actually operates in real life. And say with China and the Hong Kong police, it wasn't that 
the Chinese government told the Hong Kong police to be brutal, to crack down, to do all those things. It was a slower process of corruption. It was making the Hong Kong police back its play. It was making the Hong Kong police do these things that gradually forced the Hong Kong police into a corner. And then, at that point, the Hong Kong police started to lose sense of its original mission, lose sense of its integrity. And in that sense, China didn't have to boss the Hong Kong police around. They just had to put them in that position. And so we need to start thinking about how the New Zealand government, how New Zealand businesses are being put in positions where it's starting to be allow itself to be compromised and allow itself to be used for some of those purposes and what it might mean for us and what position it will put us in 10, 20 years down the line. New Zealand is a country of immigrants now, so almost whenever there is a major event overseas, you would hope that there would be a journalist from that background. From your experience, do you think we should be making more of an effort to have people, be they Somalis, be they Pacific Islanders, reporting in the countries of origin where they speak the languages? Yeah, I think so. A very new thing that I've learnt this time around is that the emotional component matters a lot in terms of how you understand these kinds of movements, that purely understanding them in terms of political analysis or economic analysis or whatever else just doesn't quite cut it. You've got to be there and you've got to understand what people are feeling. You've got to be able to look at them in the eyes and talk to them in their own language and understand the nuances of what they're saying to really understand what the movement is about. That was Keith Ng, a data journalist with the New Zealand Herald, who last month spent three weeks in Hong Kong covering the protests. That's it for Media Watch this week, but we'll be back at the same time next week on RNZ National.